Good evening. It's, it's a blessing to be here uh, tonight. Um, I appreciate Ben leading those songs. Um, there, there, there's a theme throughout those. I don't know if you, you, you noticed. The theme of, of just how much of a blessing uh, it is to be God's child um, is within all of, those, all of those songs that we sung. Um, such a blessing that overpours uh, on us that, that we have... The ability is not the right word. We have, we have the right to be, to be His child. And the fact that we can be a part of, of, of His family is a wonderful blessing. Um, and that's certainly something uh, that, that we all want to be a, a, a part of. And uh, it's my encouragement tonight, hoping that those who are not a part of His family will become one. Um, and, and maybe this lesson will play a part uh, in that. Um, We've, we've been talking this month uh, on Sunday mornings uh, about evangelism, looking at evangelism throughout the book of Acts. And something that I want to talk about tonight is, is I guess, more, um, maybe something that's a little bit more practical, less motivational to go out there and do it. I think the first two lessons that we've had so far within this series have been much more uh, trying to get us to realize this, this, is, this is something that we're a part of and we need to be doing this. Tonight... What I hope this is, is uh, something that will help you as you go out there and do it. Because my guess is the topic that we're going to talk about tonight is something that you, you're probably going to run into. Uh, people who have disagreements with us on this particular topic. And what I hope uh, is that this will be helpful in, in that. Uh, this will give you uh, some sort of confidence in the scriptures uh, in, in, in this particular uh, discussion. Um, it'll make more sense as we get into it, but... I, I hope it's practical in, in, in that sense. But before we get into that, uh, kind of the, a, a setup for that, a major theme that we see throughout the Bible is this, this theme of, of, of transformation. Uh, you, you, you see a requirement for transformation throughout the Scriptures, Old and, and, and New Testament. John 3, uh, Jesus preaches uh, to Nicodemus to be born again. Right? Nicodemus being this godly man, this man who, who has dedicated his life to understanding God's word, he needed to, to start over, in a sense. Even he needed to be born again. And then you see kind of the, the opposite story told in John 8, where you have this adulterous woman, um, where these men are ready to stone her. But then Jesus swoops in, saves her, but then says to her, hey, sin no more. Yes, you've been saved, but you, you, you can't go on living the way you were living before. It needs to change. You need to do something different. You, too, need to be born again, in a sense. There needs to be this, this transformation. And throughout the New Testament, an image or an illustration, a metaphor of sorts that's used to, to, uh, to talk about this transformation is this death-then-life discussion where we have died and now we live. And, and I believe it's a reference to Jesus' death and resurrection throughout the New Testament when this illustration is made. Uh, but New Testament writers write about this. When one is converted or when one becomes a Christian, their former self dies while a new self begins. Just to look at a few passages, Romans 12 and verse 1, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice. What is a sacrifice but a, a death to one thing, right? And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Galatians 2 and verse 20, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I don't live anymore because that person has died, but now Christ lives in me. 2 Corinthians 3 and verse 18, 
But we all are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. We're being transformed into the image of Christ. And that's something for all of us. We are all being transformed into that same image. But implied in that is that we're not the image we were before. Like we're not acting in that way anymore. We are being transformed. Same book, different chapter, uh, chapter 5 and verse 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. If you're in Christ, you're something different than you were before. Uh, Colossians 2 and verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. So that's a part of becoming alive, is that those transgressions from before have been forgiven, or they have died, and now something new lives. Same, uh, same book, different chapter, chapter 3, verse 9 and 10. You laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. There's that image again, that we're not just being transformed into some new fleshly image, but we are being transformed into the image of Christ. That old self is being put away. It is dying. It is being forgiven. And now this new self is, is, is in its place. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 11, If we died with him, we shall also live with him. You see it throughout the scriptures. There's other ones that we could do, go to. But you see this throughout the New Testament of this death and then life. This image of death then life carries with it, though, I think two applications, uh, which we see in these verses uh, that, that we've looked at, uh, and both of them in connection to Jesus' death and resurrection. The two applications being the literal and the figurative. Uh, the literal being that we will literally die, and because Christ was raised, we too will literally be raised to be with Him in heaven. But then there's the figurative application as well, which is we die, as in our old sinful habits die, and they, those are put away, and then we are raised a new man, one that has been transformed. That new man takes the place of the old. And so it, has, it carries with it both, both applications. And I believe both carry with it the application of, of salvation. I think that transformation is salvation. Salvation both here on earth, when we become a Christian, we are saved as we are living. But then in the end, we are ultimately saved as well. So it, it, it would apply in both situations. Now, this isn't very controversial, I don't think. Uh, most, most people who, understand, or who claim to be Christians would agree with things like this. Uh, Christians everywhere believe, I believe uh, in, in salvation. But it's the means by which we are saved that creates a little bit more tension. Um, this theme of transformation is, is so strong in the New Testament that most do not um, argue against or deny the fact that a person does need to be transformed. But the question is, how are we transformed? Or you could phrase it this way, how are we saved? How are we saved? Um, that's the question I want to I think about uh, tonight. Um, again... If Bob and I have motivated you enough to go out and spread the word like those in Acts did, you better get to this topic. If, if, if you're not getting to salvation, uh, you, you haven't quite got to it. Preaching Jesus means you are trying, you are trying to teach them about salvation. Well, I think there, there's two different camps that uh, things often get uh, divided into. One is, are we saved by grace? 
Are we saved by grace? Ephesians 2 and verse 8 and 9. Uh, For by grace you have been saved. All right, close your Bibles. There we go. We are saved by grace, right? Saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Or are we saved by baptism? 1 Peter 3 and verse 20. During the, uh, during the construction of the ark, eight persons were brought safely through water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. All right, so which is it? Which one saves us? Because what we got here are two different declarations of how you are saved and two things that come across as perhaps contradictory. How are we transformed? How are we saved? Is it through grace or is it through baptism? The simple answer is yes. But it's probably not going to go very far, and so I think we need to uh, explore this a little bit more. There are many who defend Ephesians 2 in grace in such a way uh, as to neglect other parts of Scripture. And there are some, though I admit much fewer, who defend 1 Peter 3 in baptism to such an extreme that they either give the impression of neglecting, or perhaps deliberately neglecting, Ephesians 2 and, and grace. But... If we believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, as in it does not contradict, then somehow these two passages go together. And so how are we going to do that? How does that work? Now, if you feel as though they don't go together, well, then we have a bigger problem that we need to discuss, and this lesson isn't going to be very helpful. We are operating under the principle that Scripture can interpret itself. We are operating under the principle that they do not contradict. So, what I would like to do tonight is explore this idea, saved by grace, or are we saved uh, by baptism? And what I want to do is look at, specifically, these two passages in a little bit more detail. I was, I was telling Hannah earlier, my fear is that this lesson becomes a little too academic. There is going to be some academic sides to it, because we're going to try our best to dissect Scripture as best we can at the same time you understand that the application of how we are saved is not an academic study. This is something that is extremely important that we need to, that we need to uh, understand. But what I want to do is look at just Ephesians 2 and 1 Peter 3 and Romans 6. We're, I'll throw that in as well. We're going to be looking at these three passages and see how these things fit together. So go ahead and open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We'll begin there. I'll have it on the screen but I do think it's a good habit to have it open in front of you as well, so you can see a little bit of context uh, there. Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to look at the first 10 verses there. But before we get to the 10 verses, it would be important to set up a, a little bit of context as we get into Ephesians 2. Um, in Ephesians 1, verses 18, uh, or in verse 18, Paul says, I pray the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of your calling. Paul wants certainty here. He doesn't want the people reading this letter to have a question as to what their hope is. There needs to be certainty in this. Paul wants his readers to be certain in what awaits them, the promise that God has given them. And then he kind of transitions in verse 20, and he talks about how the power of God was shown through raising Jesus from the dead and seating Him in the heavenly places. And then, with that in mind, he gets to Ephesians 2. And if he, in Ephesians 2, he makes the connection of Jesus' death and resurrection to us. Look at verse 1. So he says that Jesus, back in chapter 1, died and was raised. And in verse 1, he says, and you were dead in your trespasses. He says, you know what? You were dead too. 
You were dead in your trespasses and sin. And he expands on that a little bit more in the next couple of verses. He says, you were dead because you were walking in sin. You were living a life of sin. You were following Satan, uh, the, the prince of the power of the air, it says in verse 2. So because you were doing all these things and living in this way, you, you were really dead. You were dead in your trespasses. But earlier, in, in chapter 1 and verse 19, Paul wants them to be confident in his power towards us who believe. Towards us who believe. You were dead in your sin, but you believed. And because of that, God is rich in his mercy and love. God is rich in his mercy and love. And how is, how is that mercy and love shown? Well, look at verse 5. Verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, and raised us up, it says in verse 6. You see that death to life transformation there? You were dead in your trespasses, but He made us alive. That's His mercy. That's His love that He has shown. We have been raised up with Him. And at the end of verse 5, notice Paul calls this death to life transformation, he calls it a saving grace. By grace you have been saved. Now, back in chapter 1, verse 19, he says his power towards us who believe. Does this mean that because they believed in God, that they have somehow earned God's saving grace? Does this mean that their belief now, it means that God now owes them this life? No, this is described as mercy. This is described as grace. This is something that God is giving to them. Grace and mercy are words that, that, that are implied in there that you didn't do anything to, to merit whatever the result was. However, it's pretty clearly implied that this transformation from death to life would not have happened if they didn't believe, right? I don't think anyone would argue against that. So you can see that the requirement of belief is not equal to suddenly meriting grace, or deserving grace, or earning that grace. If we keep going in the text, uh, we see in, in, verse, in verse 6, that we're not just made alive, but we are raised up with Him and seated in the heavenly places. Similar to what we saw uh, in chapter 1, when Jesus was raised up into the heavenly places, though we don't have the absolute power that, that Jesus has. Um, and this new life is a display of the surpassing riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. This new life that we have been given is the display of His saving grace, these riches of His grace that He gives us. And then he summarizes this transformation in the following verses. Read in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. This grace has been shown to those who have faith, those who believe, and this grace is still described as this gift from God. You see, you see that life again, for by grace you have been saved, you have been transformed, you have been brought into new life. And I love in verse 10, it talks about, for, it says, for we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We are created by God and therefore bear the image of God. But we saw back in verse 1 that we've been living in sin and that image has now been tainted. But when we have been transformed, we now bear that image once again. And through Christ we are transformed back into that image so that 
We can do the works of the flesh again so that we can, we can uh, do the same things that brought death into the world back in Genesis 3? No. We have been transformed so that we might do good works. Works that God intended for us to do from the beginning. Ephesians 2 speaks about this death to life transition. And that is summarized by calling it the grace of God, this gift of God that has been given to us. Well, let's look at 1 Peter 3. Open up your Bibles to 1 Peter 3. In 1 Peter 3, uh, the context of this passage is really about overcoming suffering, which, uh, beginning in verse 18, it doesn't really feel like that's what he's talking about. The context, though, is overcoming suffering. Verse 14, he says that you're blessed if you suffer for the sake of, of righteousness. And then in verse 15, Peter urges them uh, to continue uh, to, to, to speak about your faith, uh, to defend the faith with gentleness and reverence, uh, re regardless of whatever slandering or reviling may, may come your way. And then he connects it to Jesus in verse 18, because Jesus suffered as well. Verse 18, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that He might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So it says that Jesus suffered and died, but He died for our sins. He, 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 though He was just, He died for the place of us. He did it for a purpose. He died for sins. Uh, that which brings about death, which we saw back in Ephesians chapter 2, right? You were dead in your sins, right? This sin that brings about death, Christ died for those sins. And you see, He did it that He might bring us to God. Think back to Ephesians chapter 2. Remember in Ephesians 2, in that death to life trans transformation that we are brought up to be with Him, seated in the heavenly places. And here we go again. We see the same imagery that we might be brought to God. Christ died for sins so that, we could, so that He could bring us to God. And we're able to be with God because our flesh has been put to death and we have been made alive in the Spirit. Y'all see that? There's that death to life transformation yet again. Uh, we're, we're, we're seeing Peter really speak about that same transformation that Paul was talking about in Ephesians chapter 2. And notice that this is only made possible because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then, this is where Peter kind of takes a turn, makes a connection that I would not have made on my own. But considering Jesus... Um, opened up their minds to understand the Scriptures, Peter's able to see this. Uh, in verse 19, Peter makes a comparison to the days of Noah in this. Speaking of, of saving those who lived in the flesh, right? Uh, we, we, we saw that having been put to death in the flesh and made alive in the Spirit. Speaking of those who lived in the flesh, verse 19 talks about Jesus proclaiming in the days of Noah this, this salvation, right? Um, proclaiming to those who had thoughts that were evil continually, Genesis 6 and verse 5, and that they could be brought to safety or, or be saved through water. Read with me in verse, in verse 19. Uh, in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. I think a reference to, to death there. And then in verse 20, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So even though 
Water was a vehicle of destruction in Genesis chapter 6. Peter makes the point that water was actually a vehicle of salvation as it brought death to the flesh. That's what this water did in Genesis chapter 6. It, it brought death to the flesh, those who lived in the flesh. And it brought life to those who lived of the Spirit, those who lived of God. This same water brought about death to the flesh and life to those who, live, who were living of God. And Peter says it plainly that they were brought safely through water. And in verse 21, corresponding to that, or likewise, or in the same way, baptism now saves you. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it says at the end of verse 21, baptism now saves you. So because Christ was raised, which Peter speaks a lot about back in 1 Peter chapter 1, that you too can be raised. Uh, but now, but, but, but the question is, how, how are we raised? Well, Peter makes the connection to baptism. Being immersed in water and raised out of it. Not to be confused with just getting wet or, or cleaning off some dirt or anything like that. What he calls baptism is an appeal to God. That's an interesting phrase. What Peter calls baptism in this case is an appeal to God. What's an appeal but getting on your hands and knees and begging God? It's not some great work that you have accomplished in baptism. That's not how Peter is describing it. He's describing it as an appeal, a cry, a call to God for transformation, a call to God for His good gift, you might say. It's not just a removal of, of, of dirt from the flesh, but it's, God, I want you to totally destroy the flesh, this corrupted flesh, and make me good again through the resurrection of Jesus. And I think imp implied in that, that we, are, that, that we are being made good through this, is that there's that connection back to the workmanship that we saw back in Ephesians chapter 2, that we were created for His workmanship, or in 2, Peter, or, excuse me, in 2 Corinthians 3, being transformed into His likeness, as we saw before. We are being made good through this, an appeal for a good conscience. Then in verse 22, he talks about Jesus being at the right hand of God and having all authority again. The same description as what we saw back in Ephesians chapter 1. You see, Peter and Paul are talking about the same thing. They're talking about this death to life transformation. Paul calls it grace. Peter calls it baptism, an appeal to God. I think these, the connections between two, these two passages are pretty strong. But I believe they become even stronger when we read them alongside Romans chapter 6. Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Romans 6 now. Romans chapter 6, we'll start in verse 1. Uh, again, like the other passages, I want to set some context a little bit. At the end of uh, Romans chapter 5, Paul seems to be driving home this point that, that the law of Moses revealed sin. Uh, it made it very, very clear that you are sinful. You are constantly rebelling against what God uh, has done. But through Jesus, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And what a blessing that is. However... Perhaps anticipating a wrongful conclusion that people may have made, Paul asked the question in Romans chapter 6 and verse 1. He says, are we to continue in sin 
that grace may abound. It's as if he anticipated people saying, well, let me really show off the grace of God and live this terrible, terrible life. And Paul's like, no, you you can't do that. That's a hard no. May it never be, he says in verse 2. The goal of this portion of Romans 6 is to encourage his readers to complete this transformation uh, by no longer living in sin. Essentially, he's trying to motivate them, hey, don't sin anymore. Because, he says in verse 2, because you have died to sin. We have died to sin. We who died. You see that death uh, portion that we've been looking at before. This same imagery that we saw in Ephesians chapter 2 and in 1 Peter 3. But how have we died to sin? What's the connection that Paul makes here in Romans 6? Look at verse 3. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into His death? Therefore, we have been buried with Him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. We've talked all evening about the transformation from death to life. This theme that we see throughout the New Testament, particularly in Ephesians 2 and in 1 Peter 3. And an idea that is clearly connected to Jesus' death and resurrection. We talked about this transformation and how it's used in conjunction with salvation. Well, what Paul does in Romans 6, he pretty clearly connects this transformation or, or, or salvation to baptism. We see this same death to life transformation. We have been buried through baptism into death. We have died and we have been raised from the dead to walk in newness of life, dying to the old self, being raised a new man, though clearly, uh, though clearly a, a transformation of the heart, as he's talking about here, it is done through baptism. That's the connection that Paul makes. And then in verse 5, he connects being baptized into his death and walking in newness of life. He connects that to being united with him and that we are now united in the likeness of his death and we are being united in the likeness of his Resurrection. There's that death to life yet again. We're seeing being united with Christ means dying and being raised. And then to drive home his point even further, which again is to encourage people not to sin, uh, read what he says at the beginning of verse 6. He says, Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we, no longer, uh, so that we would no longer be slaves. To sin. Verse 7, for he who has died is free from sin. He says in 6 and verse 7 that baptism has freed us from that slavery that sin entangled us in. So because that sin died in baptism, or you might say have been forgiven through baptism, that we now have this life and have been set free from this. And we see the same thing in verses 8 and 9. We see the same kind of idea of dying with Christ and living with them. And he points out in verse 10 that Christ died once and for all. We saw that same phrase. Uh, we saw that same phrase in, in uh, 1 Peter 3. Um, we have died once and for all. So because we have died, we can't choose to live that life anymore. We're not going to go down that route anymore because that self has died and a new self is living. And then he concludes... If I might skip down to verse 14. For sin shall not be master over you, 
For you are not under law, or you are not under law, but under grace. It's not that we're not living under any law anymore, but we are now under the law of grace. This life after death. The law revealed sin, and therefore revealed death, while grace reveals life. And he uses similar language if you, were, if you were to look down in verse 23 of the same chapter. It says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God. You saw that same idea brought out in Ephesians chapter 2, right? Wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Again, they are all talking about the same thing, which is we have died to sin and now live with Christ. The argument against, against baptism uh, being a, a part of the plan of, of, of salvation, because I'm going to guess as you go out into the world and begin to, uh, to preach Jesus to people, this, is, this might be a point of contention. I'm going to guess y'all can think of conversations you, you've had uh, in the past. But the argument against it being a part of, of the plan of salvation is usually made on the basis of baptism being, being a work of, of, of some kind, right? So making baptism a, a part of the plan of salvation, making works a plan of the part of salvation, well, that would be false doctrine as it contradicts what Ephesians chapter 2 says. So kind of in the same way as how uh, Jewish Christians back in Acts chapter 15, uh, it said that they were placing these unnecessary burdens on Gentiles by saying, hey, you got to go and become a, a Jew before you can become a Christian. So in the same way, putting baptism in this plane of salvation is adding an unnecessary burden that is not needed. That's how people would, would interpret that idea, and which would make sense. If indeed we are making works, something that we do, something that we can show God and say, hey, you owe me this. Yeah, that would make sense that it would be a false doctrine adding to something that Jesus has not said, or the apostles have not claimed. And that's a pretty strong claim, though. To say that uh, requiring baptism uh, is a false doctrine is a pretty strong claim. One, that the one making the claim and the one on the receiving end of the claim had better think a lot about. So is baptism a work that earns salvation? Well, is that how 1 Peter 3 talks about it? Is that how Romans 6 portrays baptism? You know, I would argue if baptism is a work because it's something we do in order to merit salvation, I think an even stronger argument could be made that belief is a work, or, or that faith is a work, or that repentance is a work, therefore earning you salvation. Because uh, belief, faith, and repentance, those are active verbs. You, you, you believe. That's something you do. You, have, you, 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 you are repenting. That's something you do. Baptism, on the other hand, is a passive verb. It's something that is happening to you. And then to go with that, on the topic of belief, Jesus even says in John chapter 6 and verse 28, these people are asking him, hey, how can we do the works of God? How can we do the works of God? You know what Jesus says? He says, believe. So is belief or faith a work? Therefore, leading us to the conclusion that we ought to remove it from the plan of salvation. No, absolutely not. I don't think anyone would make that argument. 
Why do we remove baptism? Salvation is, is a promise that God has given to us. But I think most Christians would understand that it's a conditional one. Those who read their Bibles would understand that it is a conditional promise, right? Do the conditions merit the gift? The fact that we have to believe, does that suddenly mean that we have earned the gift from God? The fact that God tells us to be baptized, does that mean that we have suddenly earned this gift from God? No, the conditions don't merit the gift, but they are required. But I think the strongest argument is, if, if baptism is a work, and therefore not needed to be saved, then 1 Peter 3 and Ephesians 2 openly contradict one another. However, rather than pitting Scripture against Scripture, what I would like to do to answer the question of grace or baptism is interpret Scripture with Scripture. And I want to combine the passages that we've looked at tonight. For those of you taking notes, I'm going to read this a couple times because I think this is, this is important. Um, if I might combine Ephesians 2, 1 Peter 3, and Romans 6 that we've looked at. We are saved by grace which is the merciful gift from God to those who believe and appeal to Him by the waters of baptism, through which we are transformed from death to life, both figuratively in that we live differently or spiritually, and literally in that when we die, we will be raised to be with Him. Let me read that again. We are saved by grace, which is the merciful gift from God, to those who believe and appeal to Him by the waters of baptism, through which we are transformed from death to life, both figuratively in that we live differently or spiritually, and literally in that we will die and be raised to be with Him. It's my hope that you don't just see baptism as some work deserving of the merciful gift of God. Because as we've sung tonight, we are His children. Not because we've prayed really loud. I love verse 3 points that out. It's because this is a gift that God has given us. I hope that we would look at baptism as, it, as it's described. An appeal to God for a good conscience. An appeal to God to transform us into His likeness and to free us from sin. So it shouldn't be grace or baptism, but I think we should see it as grace in baptism. I think that's how the scriptures would interpret scripture. I hope this has been helpful. Um, again, I, I hate that this has been more of an academic type study, but I hope it's helpful for us as we go out and try and preach the gospel. But Perhaps the main thing that I can say, um, as, as I hope we are all students of the Bible, is that you would have an Acts 17, um, Church of Berea attitude, which is that you would diligently search the Scriptures to make sure that what I am saying is true. That's what I've tried to do tonight, is present Scripture in front of you, underline it, highlight it, and stuff like that, so that we can have a better understanding of Scripture. But may that... That shouldn't mean that we are no longer looking at Scripture for ourselves. I hope that's what you're doing. But really, the hope is that you would see this, a study tonight, 
For those who are not baptized, those who have not had their sins forgiven and had this death to life transformation that is embedded in baptism, that you would realize that it is needed, that it is a part of God's plan, and that you need your sins forgiven. If you have not been baptized, then you do not have those sins forgiven. If you would like to have that happen, come up now while we stand and while we sing.